What's that okay. noise? It's a, you sorry, a, can you hear it? It's a drill. You're a drilling. There's right. Gemma. There's Gemma. Hi. Gemma's oh. going to make me a cup of tea. She wants a divorce. <laughs> finally. <laughs> a divorce. Finally, she's realised the massive error she's made. You can finally say it. Yes. I didn't want to I'm out. leaving you. Bye. I thought that that was a pretty good deal. She gets a divorce. I get a cup <laughs> of tea. <laughs> I mean, short term, the benefits are for you. Longer term, I would suggest she comes out on top. Get that in writing, Hugh. What, the cup of tea or the divorce? Both. Because <laughs> she could divorce you and there could be no tea coming through that door. Well, when the tea arrives, I want, um, you know, some sort of reaction that my marriage is over because yeah. that will clearly be at that moment that she That's walks in the, the cup of tea. Like, like her throwing <laughs> it in your face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 hang on a minute. If I'm going to get it, she's going to get a divorce out of it. The least I could expect is an actual brew. Only if you st sort of stipulated that in the contract. Otherwise, you've left yourself open to all sorts of shenanigans. And by the way, she's divorcing somebody who's so sensitive to the importance of her work calls that he doesn't step behind her to go and make a cup of tea. Where does Gemma work? Upstairs at the moment. On the, at the kitchen table? <laughs> uh, no, normally where, where I am now. But we have to swap because podcast uh, takes priority. Right. So I'm in the office slash yes. music room slash box room slash third bedroom slash dumping ground. Yeah. So Christmas room for any presents that have yet to be wrapped. Christmas room. That's not a room. A Christmas room. It was a wedding room where, where prior to the wedding, anything that was wedding related was just dumped in mm. this room. So it became called the wedding room. And then we suddenly realized, oh, we could use it to dump everything. So seasonally, we dump stuff. The so Easter room. The Christmas room. It's the the best, man, best man Billy was there for a week exactly. before we found it's him. It's the Whitson room. It's the exactly. Advent room. It's the Pentecost. Isn't that the same as Whitson? I don't know. Ed asked me this morning. Hang on, no, yesterday we were in a shop and there were lots of Christmas decorations for sale. We weren't buying them, we were buying lithium batteries. It was very exciting. <laughs> the, um, the, and I said, oh, look, we're in the queue. And, he, and I said, oh, look, look at all those Christmas decorations, mate. And he went, hmm, is it nearly Easter? We were like, hang on, what are you on about? He's I all just, about the chocolate eggs, that eggs, kid. Yeah, Imagine, he's, just yeah. up, he's not really fussed about presents, he's just bound up for the eggs. This is Set Piece Benny, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Farris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, liquid football, Rory Smith, a foot-like attraction engine, and Andy Hinchcliffe. The proof is in the pudding, and the pudding, in this case, is football. Um, the food is actually, uh, uh, along the theme that we just developed, the food is, and this is a rule that I hope you're all sticking to, we are recording on the 1st of December. The food is mince pies because before mm. the 1st of December, nobody should ever eat mince pies. Apart from the fact that Gemma has, and this is the sixth mince pie. It was good timing, wasn't it? Thank you. Uh, no divorce, it would seem. And also the tea is remaining in the cup. This is the sixth of a pack of six mince pies because my wife does not adhere to the very important rule that you should not do any of these things prior to the 1st of December. Put up your Christmas tree, wrap any presents, sing any Christmas songs, listen to any Christmas songs, or indeed have mince pies. So it's the 1st of December. We're recording on the 1st. I'm allowed a mince pie. Disgusting. A lot of trees have gone up early this year, but I think given the circumstances, we can probably, probably, as, as Kate keeps saying, it's something to do, isn't it? I'm, I'm not a fan of mince pies, and I'm oh. not a fan of the Christmas tree going up any earlier than two weeks before Christmas. The Grinch. The Grinch. Mid-December. Look, mid, mid Look at the Grinch's face. Look at his face. That it's big hat. Like <laughs> <laughs> it's not like it comes down on Christmas Day. You know, you keep it up for 10 days after Christmas. So surely sort of 10 to 14 days before Christmas would seem an appropriate point to the erect the Christmas tree. The boys hey, your are kids the are really excited, yeah. aren't they? Looking forward to the big day. <laughs> the boys are begging <laughs> Steve to put the tree up on the 1st of December. No, not yet. Second, no, not. Gets to like the, the 23rd. All right, then I suppose if we have to, tiny little plastic tree goes up. <laughs> Boxing Day comes around. He's, he's he's gagging to take it down. I was pretty. Really I was I was livid to come down to breakfast this morning to discover that the elf had turned up. Oh, his, the elf! His arrival's elf. premature, I reckon. Yeah, well, no. I, I'm, is, I'm with you on the elf. It's important to note that uh, that all my rules are based on uh, you know decades worth of principle, whereas Steve's rules are based on the fact that he can't get his ass in gear until two weeks before Christmas, and you're lucky if you get it before the twenty first in his house. It's called the Wyeth Faff, and that's the reason why Christmas doesn't happen until he's good and ready in his household. So, I also so like the idea of Steve coming down to breakfast wearing like a <laughs> like a silk dressing gown. <laughs> <laughs> sitting himself in his wingback armchair, reading the Telegraph and complaining about poor people. That is a morning. <laughs> um, 
So the food is mince pies. And don't forget to tell us about your favourite food places in the vicinity of your team's ground. Uh, this is something that uh, started last week. If Andy goes there for a game, he's promised that he will check it out. <laughs> if it's a Chinese takeaway, on the way out, he will check it out. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Uh, the football is Chinch. Do you know what we're talking about today? Uh, I've got a list here. Uh, Cruyff, Maradona, Messi, Ronaldo, Pele and Hinchcliffe. Are we talking the football genius? Well, much has been written about one of those people in the last seven days. Diego yeah. Maradona. Some of it was excellent. None more so than that, that hipster football writer who works for a broadsheet newspaper, has pen books and knows something about the game overseas, Jonathan Wilson. There were mm. also pieces by journalists, including Rory Smith. While we feel like that work should remain undiluted by our own ramblings, Maradona's death did prompt today's question, and Chinch has hinted at it. Can you have the genius without the flaws? It's probably a question that applies to more than football, but we'll take our own little slice of that pie and run with it. Pass Beardsley, Reed, Butcher, Fennec, and Butcher again to see whether a maverick can indeed have the angel without the devil. Um, that is all to come. You can get in touch with the podcast at piecemenu at gmail.com. Of course, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and our YouTube channel. Um, our friend Drew Savage is back with a team that looks different to how it sounds. And he says this, Dear Athos, Porthos, Aramis, and D'Artagnan. Or Dogtanian for people of my generation. <laughs> Hang on. Which musketeer is which? I have no idea. Because I do I... not want to be Porthos. Can I be Aramis? We all, well, everyone sounds like Steve is Porthos. It's an aftershave, isn't it? It sounds like Steve's Porthos. I'll be Athos. That's fine. Athos, okay, and I'll be Dogtanian. Um, you ask, says Drew, <laughs> for teams that are pronounced completely another way to what you might think. Can I nominate of the Polish extra classer, and I'm going to say it as written phonetically, Slask Rocklaw. They played Dundee United in a European game a while back, says Drew, and it became professionally necessary to know how to say it correctly. The thing is, in a standard English character set, you can't see that there is an accent under the first S, a curly thing that I think might be called a sedilla under the A, and a line through the second L. This apparently means that you pronounce it Schlonsk Wrocław. It was so far away from what we were expecting that once we got it right, we decided to keep saying it at least once an hour to keep the knowledge alive in our brains until we needed it. Unfortunately, two of us overdid it. And to this day, a colleague and I greet each other by saying Schlonsk Wrocław. That is from Drew. Polish teams are a really good source of this game. Uh, and the, the example that I thought he was going to go, go, go with there is the, the team that produced, I think, Boniek and Lato in the, eight, in the 70s. And was was kind of the, is recognised, I think, as the greatest Polish team of all time, which you, Hugh and Steve and Chinch, will know as, as Widzu, Widzu Lods, but is apparently Widziew Lutz, mm. and I think that is that. Yeah, Poland is um, Poland is rich in these names. Very difficult language, Polish. Uh, which which Polish team is the best Scrabble score? There must be some really high scores with these teams. There's lots of oh. Z's and C's, and it's all over the shop, isn't it? Really? Bialystok. Hang on, just. Let me just doodle it. Uh, I would suggest, and I'm going to mispronounce it, Jadielonia Bialystok is a good one. Although you'd have to have a lot of letters, Chinch, let yeah, me tell you. Yeah, which, yeah. which part did that guy play in the producers? I can't remember. Anyway, um, so yes, any more of those to set? Oh, no, I've got an even better one. At gmail.com. Rory has another. I've got two, actually. Uh, so I apologise for the... In fact, there's just all of them, Chinch. All of them yeah. are amazing for Scrabble. So Thank you. you've got Pod Bestidzi, apparently. <laughs> Zadlaby, which will be pronounced really dif differently. So any Polish listeners, welcome to contribute. But probably the winner is Pogon. That sounds normal. Zierjin, which is S-Z-C-Z-E-C-I-N, which is actually a great Scrabble score, but impossible in Scrabble because I think there's only one Z. Uh, that is indeed true. Uh, to all our Polish listeners, apologies. Um, I promise that we try to keep squeezing in your emails on what makes a good game. So some more of those to come. But first, in response to last week's SPM 206 about supporting, sh sorry, Sonetti teams, James Leverett has written to us. Hi, love the pod. The most recent pod felt like the most relevant to me so far. As an Ipswich supporter, I haven't had much mm. to be cheerful for since Big Mick left. He's not going back as far as I expected. But anyway, we have, relatively speaking, a fine history, providing platforms for legendary England managers such as Sir Bobby Robson and Sir Alf Ramsey, sadly, before my time. But that history remains as relevant as ever. Living in the Northwest, it has been difficult to watch them in person over the last few years. I took my now wife with me to Ipswich to watch Mick McCarthy's team draw 2-2 with the Apstam's Reading side, nicely linking in with your great game debate, possibly. Plucky Ipswich taking the lead twice against what at the time is a good Reading side, but in trademark Ipswich fashion, not closing the game out. My family also support Sonetti teams. Well, 
that's Ipswich and Everton, both fondly remembered by neutrals for days gone by. But it struck me whilst listening to the pod that with all the recent chat and weighing up of a European Super League, that Sonetti teams are actually more important than ever. As you've mentioned in previous pods, each league must have a West Brom. Manchester United are a great commercial team nowadays, but in a European Super League, they would be one of the Sonetia teams, would support dwindle if they experienced a continuation of their lost status and standing within the game. I also think that video games such as FIFA and Football Manager have contributed perhaps unknowingly to this. Sonetti teams can become projects for players. Can they return Ipswich to the top flight or indeed European glory? Good luck with that. But in the real world, outside of Ipswich or the network of supporters, there is little chance of getting new fans on board. Each season, they become a little less relevant to the overall population. You just need to look at League One this season with some of the former Premier League teams in the division. And yet the so-called Sonetti teams are the lifeblood of league football in this country. As you mentioned, that ability for fans to dream of restoring their team status amongst the elite and slightly less Sonetti teams is what we hang on to. In Ipswich's case, it is foolish as we will undoubtedly nosedive in the second half of the season and remain in League One for another year. Love the pod. Keep up the great work. That is from James. Uh, Robbie Wells is our Bear correspondent from North Carolina, but manages to get through an entire email without any reference of any kind to any fauna. Uh, Dear Samantha, Miranda, Charlotte and Carrie. Thanks again for another wonderful pod. When I saw the title, I did wonder how on earth you could talk for an entire episode on such a narrow subject. But once again, you managed it with aplomb. So many things from the discussion touched on my own experiences, but I had one thing I wanted to share. My team is Aston Villa. And yes, by virtue of the fact there is a football pyramid and Villa are nowhere near the bottom, it's fair to say that lots of other fans would say, you think your team is Sonetti? Try being a something else fan. But our last couple of seasons in the Premier League before our relegation and then turgid football under Roberto Di Matteo and then Steve Bruce fully staked our claim as a Sonetti team. My love of Aston Villa faltered, but my love of football podcasts, including yours, did not. I became interested instead in European football. I could never bring myself to support another British side, of course. I then focused in on Italy and decided to support an Italian team. I have no real connection to Italy, but I found myself completely drawn to Roma and would follow all of their games and watch them at the weekend. It turns out, Roma are a bit Sonetti too. My wife, who has to deal with my moods following poor football results, could not understand why I wouldn't just pick Juventus. Why would I choose a side who has won three titles in its entire history? Quite honestly, I don't know. But something about being a Villa fan meant that it would be ridiculous to choose a team that wins regularly. The idea that your team could build to something and may one day provide that explosion of joy is to me what supporting a team is about. Having that one player, Grealish or Zaniolo, that completely transcends the team is another great joy. The idea that these are my players is a balm in the absence of any other tangible success. Keep up the great work. Ciao, says Robbie Wells. Uh, are Roma Villa? Is, but but Roma aren't Sonetti, are they? I don't think. I think that. Well, would no, they're not. They're neither a Villa, really. You, they, you, you're pushing it a bit to say that either of them are Sonetti, but Roma. Yeah, but at least Roma, are get, Roma are getting into the Champions League. Yeah, Roma are like the the fourth biggest club that. in Italy. No, yeah, they're. But is that a natural parallel for a, a Villa fan to be a Roma is, is, fan? Is there not like a Sonetti dot to dot across Europe where you can say, <laughs> well, if you're a Villa fan in Italy, in Spain, in Germany, uh, would you be able to pick out a Villa? I think Torino are Villa, aren't they? I think that, that, would, be, what... yeah, that would be a close, yeah, closer parallel because, yeah, a, a second, Rome, Rome, yeah, second city it, type of thing. Yeah, yeah. And historical success, playing a kind of off red colour, um, obviously more tragic history. Torino than Villa, but and then and, and get relegated occasionally. Torino or Villa? More trophies in the Villa cabinet in history than there are in the Roma cabinet, but yes, currently perhaps more Roma mm. than Villa. Um, you'll remember our Steve mentioned another Steve, uh, our friend Steve Houghton, who is a fan of Colchester United. Oh no, was he listening? He was listening, oh. and he continues to insist to call the Super use. He has a rebuttal. Dear all, I very much enjoyed last week's pod on the sport of shit team. Sorry, Stephen, you work for the BBC. Please do not swear. I very much enjoyed last week's pod on the sport of Sonetti teams, a subject to which, as you mentioned, I bring a level of expertise. Such expertise, in fact, when I worked at Radio 5 Live, my colleagues took great pleasure in calling me the football producer. The pod has caused me to think long and hard about why I am indeed a Colchester United fan. Why, after spending my childhood being taken one week to Colchester and then the next down the road to watch Ipswich, did I settle on the significantly less historic and successful club? And why, when moving to the Northwest nine years ago, did I not immediately buy a Manchester City season ticket, sit back and try to put the whole business behind me? You were spot on with two of the more obvious reasons you spoke about. Firstly, the sense of place my club gave me growing up, living in the village of Leia, from which the heap layer road took its name the second of course is family with my dad a season ticket holder now in his 68th year of supporting the U's. but i think the U's are such a big part of me because they represent such a significant and enjoyable part of my youth 
Between 1990 and 2007, from my ages of 14 to 31, they did have the most interesting and successful period of their history, returning back into the Football League and eventually for one golden season to the upper reaches of the Championship. It was a real laugh, and sharing those experiences with lifelong friends while still living in the South created a bond that I am forced to endure now that I live in the North. Watching a struggling team in an empty away end at Boundary Park has so far not proved as alluring for my six-year-old son. I sometimes feel clubs at all levels assume that being a fan is all about the game and the match day experience. It really isn't. It's at least as much about seeing your mates, going to the pub and visiting different places. In League Two, the product on the pitch cannot possibly be the sole reason for going. Which brings me, finally, to why I called Colchester the Super U's. Think of it in the same way as England fans sang It's Coming Home when they were patently unlikely to win the World Cup. Hopefully the nickname Super U's is marginally less offensive to the rest of the world. Thanks for reading. That's from Steve. Well done, Steve. You were entitled to that right to reply and you have delivered it beautifully. Um, so then, to return to the conversation about what makes a good game briefly, Alice Allen is in South East London, provides a rather nice bridge from what we've just been talking about. Dear all, says Alice, thank you for the enjoyable episodes of late. You have been helping me get through the dreariness of working from home over the last few months. Keep them coming. Uh, we will, Alice. Uh, as a supporter of not West Brom, not Burnley, but the mighty Crystal Palace, I couldn't help think that one of the key factors in what makes a good game is simply when the underdog, regardless of the scoreline, gets a result, draw or win, against a team that on paper they shouldn't. Casting my mind back to some of Palace's best games over the last 10 years, I think of when we drew against Liverpool at the end of the 2013-14 season, or the 2018-19 3-2 win at Manchester City at the Etihad, thanks to the Andros Townsend wonder goal. Neither of these games had a ridiculous scoreline per se, but when you support a team who in a given season aren't likely to win a major trophy, or to be more precise, any trophy these are the games that when you watch them fill you with pride and you forget all the years of hurt that your team have put you through the texts start flooding through to your phone from rivals and allies as your team may have helped out your united or your spurs friends you walk into work on a monday morning with your head held high thinking maybe just maybe one day your team could do a leicester that is from alice did we talk about the palace liverpool fa cup semi-final as being did, one of that, yeah, yeah, because that, that I, I think that's that was certainly one of the games that, that made me fall in love with football. So, Crystal Palace were a good example in, in that context. So, that game is, is a brilliant example, but even even then, you're kind of and that's absolutely right that that teams like Palace will, will record. I get that with teams like Palace, you're kind of reliant on the individual match rather than the kind of the, the overall season, but. I mean, I don't. I think you, Palace are not a Sanetti club. Like they've been in the Premier League more often than they've been out of it this century. They're, they're you know, one, it's, they're one of the thirty richest teams in Europe. Like Colchester are a, a whole different level of Sanetti, aren't they? Yes, it's all relative to your own personal yeah. experience. That's that's the important thing to know. And also, yes, you're right. If you do support a let's say, sonettier team than, than the majority of others, then the macro and the micro are very different. You don't have great sense of what you can achieve over the macro. So it is the micro that gives you the joy. But it also kind of suggests to me that we've, and this isn't surprising or particularly kind of revelatory, but like we've, we've allowed the media, the dominance of the bid sits in the media to kind of affect what our definition of a bid club is or a good team is. Do you know what I mean? Like that, that just because Palace aren't Manchester United or Manchester City doesn't mean that they're, that it's a particularly kind of Calvary to be a Palace supporter. Like being a Palace supporter must appear like heaven to be when, when you're like a, like a Torquay supporter. Um, there are so many more of those emails. And, and once again, we will come back to them as the weeks progress. But to finish uh, this part of the show, a reference to our ongoing conversation about Sean Dyche, resurrected last week because of the pub outside Turf Moor that honours him. Buffalo Joe Highland has got in touch following the revelation from Dyche's assistant, Ian Wone, in a recent interview. And you'll know where I'm going with this, that on a trip to the mighty Grand Canyon, Dyche spent but two minutes surveying the scene before claiming it was just a big hole. Uh, Joe writes this. Dear Steve... <laughs> After the whole manager most likely to thread started as a means to disprove the notion that Sean Dyche is only interested in barbecues, paving slabs and guttering, it is typical that Sean Dyche recently reaffirmed his own stereotype by being the manager most likely to trivialise a wonder of the world with a reductively literal description. I wonder if other Dycheian descriptions might include the following. Great Barrier Reef, just a big tropical fish tank. Aurora Borealis, just a fancy Blackpool illumination. Pyramids of Giza, just a big stone Toblerone. And <laughs> the Great Wall of China, just a load of masonry. Ben, me and James Tarkovsky are just as effective as repelling Mongolian hordes. Uh, cheers from Joe. Correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com.
Is there not a story about either England or Everton going to China and the Great Wall of China being dismissed? <laughs> I think there is not even visited. Well, yeah. Once you've seen one wall, you've seen them all. I think football's ability to kind of reject sort of natural phenomena is um is astounding. Was that Everton change? Uh, no, it was with England. Was it with they were England? They out there, England under, was it under 17s, under 18s? Yes, we played a tournament out there. But the card game that we were involved in was, it was getting heated, you know. <laughs> so we had to we had to stop playing cards, look out the window at a load of bricks. Come on, we're 17 years old. We're playing Chinch cards, was, we're big men. Chinch was like, I live quite near the Stockport Viaduct. You cannot. Oh, now me. we're talking. I'd like to see Sean Dice diss that. When we went to New Zealand, Kate and I, we went to from Queenstown to Milford Sound, which is a long drive. We're on a bus for the day, for the day, and it is a long drive. Like it, it really takes out. We left at like half five in the morning or something. But there were there were two or three people who were very clearly on like a massive like whirlwind tour of New Zealand, who not only slept for the entire bus journey, acceptable though the scenery scenery is pretty spectacular. They then got on the boat that takes you out into Milford Sound where you see like whales and stuff. And then, and you also get the view back into the sound. They slept through that as well. And they were just asleep in the kind of, and at, at some point I turned to her and said, why do you think they came? Do you know what I mean? Like, if you really don't want to be, I think they were teenagers as well. Teenagers are weird people. But if, 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 you, if you're so uninterested in it, that you're just going to sleep through the entire experience. What is the point? Have, have I told my Colosseum story in Rome? Well, there are, how many Colosseums? There's quite a few Colosseums, but the Colosseum. So we're doing a tour of the Colosseum, and there's a group of about 20 of us. There was a group of Americans, four of them. They, after about 15 minutes, they stopped the tour guide and said, uh, we have to go now. We've got a booking at TGI Fridays. <laughs> they left a tour of the Colosseum to go to TGI Fridays. Surely there's not a TGI Fridays in Rome. I cannot believe the local. <laughs> I cannot believe the local authorities would allow. It might well, have been no, on the outskirts of Rome, <laughs> but I was just open-mouthed, thinking, "What are you doing, you American clowns?" They are. I mean, both the Colosseum and TGI Fridays are monuments to a certain type of civilization. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we should not uh, finish this this discussion without me landing Stephen to completely in it, because when on a trip to Vietnam, there was an option to go over the incredible High Van Pass, wonderful snaking road over yes. the mountains to the ancient capital of Hue, which Steve decided to miss and send me on my own to do because he'd rather sit at the pool bar just having a beer. He needed the rest. You've um, taken that. Com- I mean, that is massively <laughs> taken out of context. See, we'd love to give you a right to reply, but we're not. Carry on so, here. So, our subject today. <laughs> It is clear to everyone who listens to Seppi's Many that Rory Smith is quite good at what he does. Occasionally, it is also clear to the rest of us on this Zoom call. As you might have mentioned in retweeting Rory's piece written after the death of Diego Maradona, this is every bit as brilliant as you'd expect from our Rory Smith. It was so good, there's not a lot that we can actually add of any value today, which is usually the case, actually, although rarely something that we'd admit to. But it did at least give us an opportunity to talk about the wider themes that find their encapsulation in someone like Diego Maradona. The question today is, can you have the genius without the flaws. As Maradona's former personal trainer, Fernando Signorini said in uh, Asif Kapadia's documentary, Diego and Maradona were two different people. Diego was the wonderful boy with human insecurities. Maradona was the character he had to come up with in order to face the demands of the football business and the media. Very much like Andy is that soft-centered homeboy and Hinchcliffe is that world-beating successful Mm. footballer and pundit. Uh, You might also say that Diego was the genius and Maradona was the flaw. And you could apply that idea to more than just him. But as the years go by and the unvarnished quality of football in the late 1980s makes way for the sanitized, controlled environment of the modern game, are the flaws still there? If they are, how are they hidden? And if they aren't, can we claim to be seeing true genius in the likes of Ronaldo and Messi? I'm reminded of an email sent in by Andy Leach from New Zealand, would you believe? I don't know how close to Milford Sound. Almost two years ago, which off the top of my head, obviously, said something like this. Does anyone feel like the creative freedom, spontaneity and general entertainment value is slowly being ironed out of modern football? Mavericks like Ronaldinho, Raquelme and Matt Letizia now seemingly have no place in the game as flair and expression make way for gegenpressing and repetitive triangles. Does the pod think these types of players and teams are consigned to a bygone era or is the period of intense tactics only a temporary moment? So it's not just the so sociological context in which a star modern footballer operates it is also the tactical framework in which they work that might mean the maverick is a thing of the past and might it also be that you simply cannot have the genius without 
the flaws. Are we able to compare Maradona to, say, Messi? Because I think that's that's a really really good point. I don't know. Have any of you watched the um, chess-based miniseries, The Queen's Gambit? We watched the first episode, watched and it didn't yeah. really grab us. It's 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 brilliant. But there's a line in it. Beth Harmon, she's this kind of she, she's not a real person, but, it's, but I think it's based on Bobby Fischer. But she's this kind of chess prodigy. And her mum, her adopted mum, says to her, "You've got this genius for playing chess. You have the genius, but there's a price you have to pay for it." And that seemed. Is that the case with Maradona? But it's maybe not the case with Messi. Does Messi have to pay a price or is he a different type of genius than Maradona? Well, strictly speaking, you can compare anything. So we could compare a polar bear to a Peugeot 306. Shall that we? Is, that is, that's entirely Which is possible. the genius? So the, the genius, I would say, is the polar bear as it hunts human flesh. Yeah. But if you want a, a roomy family runaround, don't get a polar bear. Polar bears are no good for that. It's very true. Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, it's a comparison, but it's a useless one. The, the French automobile industry does pride itself with innovation. So I think you're <laughs> overlooking the genius of the Peugeot. A little too quickly there, Rory. You can compare Maradona and Messi. And I think Johnny Lewis done a really good piece on this uh, on the day of recording, which is worth looking up on The Guardian, uh, about kind of the fact that although everything is different across areas, the pictures are different, the treatment is different, the, the style is different, the pace is different, all that stuff, the game itself is still the same. So it's not totally futile to compare Maradona and Messi. I think comparing them doesn't mean we can have an answer about which one was better or, or certainly not like a definitive answer. I think there's, and they're not two separate issues here because to me, you couldn't have had Maradona the genius without, or Diego the genius without Maradona the floor because of his kind of his unique context and circumstances and personality. But if you go through the list of like the great players, the truly kind of defined, like defining players in football history, he's kind of an outlier, isn't he? Yeah, so so Messi's, so. Yeah. Messi's not a particularly troubled individual. There's no great price Messi has to pay for his genius. Cruyff, Pelé? Cruyff was a rebel, but, and that, the, the, yeah, Cruyff, so I wonder if maybe you can, maybe you can put them into two, two camps. So if you maybe have Cruyff, Maradona and Best who were, I don't think Cruyff was, was particularly troubled, but they had a, like a proper maverick streak. We should say that a floor is not necessarily um, a reliance on alcohol or narcotics no, 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 or, no. or any sort of deficiency of character. A floor can be any number of things. And, and, and even going as far as Messi, you could say that a floor has become the sense of reliance that Barcelona have on him, his power within the structure at it Barcelona. It does tend to be drug-related, doesn't it? But, but has undermined <laughs> their potential for growth oh, post-Messi and in the latter parts of his career. So floors, we should say here, are not just the flaws that Maradona Donna had he encapsulated the argument that we might be making but he's not necessarily the only so, example of how a flawed genius can operate no so i think but that i don't know flaws that maybe the right word for that and i don't want to be semantic but there's definitely like a yin and a yang so if you if you have a messi or a maradona or a pele or a cruyff when that player goes even to a, even to a lower level to be honest so someone like I don't know, like Gerard at Liverpool. Once Gerard left Liverpool, there was a there was a, a great big hole of personality and authority and character and kind of idolatry that was that was left and couldn't be filled immediately. Um, the better the player, there is without question there is a, a yang that follows the yin, which is that you you have to you have to accept almost that if you have the privilege of having that player, that messy type character that in the years that follow you will notice their absence much more and that there is you can't have a player like Maradona or like Messi without the team essentially becoming completely reliant on them because they are that good so I th yeah that's but that's not really a that's not a flaw in their makeup that's kind of a a natural balancing act in football it's the same with managers you know United United have Manchester United gets to have or got to have Sir Alex Ferguson for 26 years. So yeah, do you know what? Afterwards, you kind of have to struggle because he casts such a long shadow. That's just the nature of life. I don't know if it's, you can't have that genius without that floor. It's just, it's the, the cost of having the genius. But is there an argument saying that you're right to say that there are two parts of this argument? Yes, it's, it's assessing the kind of characters that, that Diego Maradona particularly was, but, but then others in the periphery of the argument, but, but still in the same sort of subject area. But then also that argument that was he not only a context of his flaws, but he was in the context of what football was at the time. So if you have 
Um, you, you won't necessarily have an exact replica of Maradona, but if you have a troubled player and person in the modern era, do they fall by the wayside so they don't become the genius, the full fulfillment of their, their potential? Do they get yeah forced out of the game because they're not adhering to a much more structured setup in modern football or are they ironed out because they have so many people helping them through their lives that actually they are ironed out for good reasons in that they become a better version of themselves they become a more um become a more sensible settled mature person if maradona had been messy surely maradona would have had enough people around him and an environment in which a different path might have been followed. This is not to say just that they're two different people. It's also two different eras of football. Steve? Yeah, is, is it modern football's ability to manage the genius? Is the price that Messi has had to pay for his genius perhaps the lack of freedom or the control, the safety net that is placed around him to make sure that football is pretty much the one and only focus for him that provides the longevity and the ability to express that genius over a considerably longer period of time than Maradona was, was able to. Has, has football learned its lessons from Maradona to make sure that when those era-defining players come along, that their era is able to be prolonged because the, the trappings of their success and the, the, the distractions that would come along the way and the, the character flaws that might come with the genius don't get the exposure that they did when Maradona was at his peak. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what. Yeah, yes is the basic answer to that question. I don't know whether football has learnt directly from Maradona. I don't know whether it's it's kind of it's really absorbed the lessons that Maradona. Surely, there's taught, if you look at, but, if you look at if you look at Messi and Ronaldo, Pele, surely that their personalities are massively different seemingly to Diego Maradona. So it seemed to be what was Maradona that personality who played football. Football didn't create the person that he was. Probably, again, it fueled it, but surely he must have had that, the person that he was. Would he have, would he have been the same type of person in, in any walk of life? He had this genius ability to play football and he expressed that and that allowed him to do the things that he did. Because Messi, again, still it seems a strange thing to say, but he is quite straight-jacketed within modern football, yet he's still able to produce incredible things, genius things, but in a modern way. But it just seems to me that their personalities are absolutely poles apart. Messi doesn't seem to be anywhere near the kind of personality that you saw with Maradona. But, yeah, but also think... look, just very briefly on that, just because it's a direct comparison, just, just look at the struggles that Messi has had, not only following in the footsteps of Diego Maradona, there was a generation in between, obviously, but wearing that number 10 shirt mm -hmm. um, for, for Argentina, but also not being able to do what Maradona directly did. He single-handedly almost with comparative skills Lionel Messi took Argentina to a yeah. World Cup so that there there is clearly a burden that is placed upon Messi whether he feels it himself or not I'm sure he does to a certain extent but that that is also a difference isn't it that the straight jacketed nature the, the feeling that you can't necessarily be this wild maverick who expresses themselves fueled by all sorts of different things from as Rory you said and Jonathan said in the piece from a, an Argentinian football culture that that came out of the 1920s and and the Falklands War and the determination that that uh, Diego Maradona and that team had to, to try and express themselves beyond just the realms of football this these are all things that helped Maradona do what he did because of his character and yet they are the kind of thing that Messi cannot do because perhaps he is so restricted in the way that he lives his life now because of what modern football is not necessarily because of his character but because of what modern football is although I think his character plays into that because I don't think Messi has any great Messi's motivation to be brilliant is not rooted in the same things as Maradona's motivation to be brilliant. I think, but equally, we should, you know, we shouldn't. And I think I, so I did three pieces on Maradona so far. And I think one of them fell into the trap a little bit of, of glorifying Maradona's kind of maverick streak. We shouldn't be under any illusions that if Maradona, so with Cruyff and to an extent with best, their personalities turned them into the footballers that they were, that, that Cruyff's rebel ideas and his kind of his intellectualism and the, his way of thinking made him the, the football, the, the sort of dominant football figure of his era. And with best, you can make a case that certainly the kind of the fashion and the, the rock and roll element kind of turned him into the, the iconic player he was and fed into his style of football, which was not quite revolutionary at the time, but was, was kind of was iconic at the time. 
the, the, George Best's alcoholism did not help him become a better player. George Best's alcoholism cost him his career and co- certainly cost him the latter, the latter few years of his career. In the same way as Maradona's troubled, the troubled side of Maradona, the, the Maradona element of the Diego Maradona equation, that, isn't, that didn't contribute to his genius. It detracted from it. The, the, the drugs, the scandals, the, the, the associations with Camorra, all that stuff, all the extracurricular stuff, that cost Maradona part of his legacy and to be to be honest and I think Maradona said this at some point there maybe wouldn't really be a debate about who was the greatest ever player if Maradona had not had that side of his character that his peak that he, was four years basically wasn't it yeah he had a career being four years peak and that's it and we we you know we think he revolutionized the game and he's one of the best two players in history potentially it was it, his promise ran until about 1984 when he moved to Barcelona he had a sort of decent first season at Barcelona or it was 82 he went to Barca 82 he went to Barca he had a decent, a good first season at Barcelona. His promise ran until about 1982 when he was still in Argentina. Then he goes to Spain, decent first season at Barcelona, but gets kicked out of everything. Then there's the fight against Bilbao in the, um, in the Spanish Cup final, moves to Napoli. His peak probably runs Maradona from, from 84 until 1990. So at, six years, yeah, six years at, at the absolute most compared to Messi, who's been one of the best players on the planet for 15 years already. And Pele, who kind of went on forever. But I just I think there is a danger of conflating the fact that you do get you do get like maverick geniuses who need that maverick streak to be a genius, and Cruyff is the is the, the best example of that. I'm not sure Maradona that really applies to Maradona because I think that the stuff that makes him a maverick cost him so much of his career. It made him a much more compelling character, and it's why Maradona feels like he's the kind of people's choice for best ever ahead of Pele and possibly even Messi, because he's so much more compelling as a character. But I, I don't think it, I don't think it, it, it was necessary for him to be like that. Maradona could have been just as good a player as he was and not done cocaine. That's, that's, so that's apparent. And he would have been, his peak would have lasted longer. Those things though, that you, you pick out there, Rory, and you've described very eloquently as being the, the things that detracted from... Maradona's longevity and therefore take away some of what we might have got from Maradona the footballer do they not elevate him in our minds and in some ways in our esteem they they enhance the legend they don't detract from it that we as humans seem to embrace those who burn brightly but briefly in many ways more than we do those who burn you know brightly for a long time or who deliver exceptional performances in all walks sorts of walks of life over a prolonged period of time you look at like chinch like yeah, like chinch. yeah i mean mm. you know you're talking two seasons in the mid 90s and 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 look he's made a career on the back of it i was actually thinking more <laughs> how do we get how do we get from maradona to slagging me off that shouldn't happen how well, why does this always happen on this podcast because you're both left footed chinch we found a comparison was my brother thinking... left-footed? I didn't realise that. Oh, can he open a can of beans? Do you reckon? <laughs> he never let the, he never let the beans get far enough away from him for, <laughs> to require to require it to be open. I was thinking more along the lines of someone like James Dean, who yeah. was at the his his Hollywood career lasted five years. Yet over half a century after his death, he's still held as being one of the most iconic actors of all time. You've got someone like Jimi Hendrix who died in his mid-twenties as well. He delivered a couple of exceptional era-defining albums, but didn't have the kind of longevity of the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, but is talked about in, in, in the same breath. That we, we do seem to be attracted to those people who, who flourish briefly but brilliantly, don't we? It's, it's, the, human, it's the human aspect of it, is it? Like Mark Boland, it's, it's the human aspect yeah. of it, that these things, terrible accidents or the way that people live their lives causes them to to ultimately fail or, or die and people maybe yeah do appreciate that actually they're, they're real people incredible people but they're, they're more like us than we probably realize that's a, do you know that's a that's a really good point from steve to, to church Bain, who was one of the kind of defined defining figures of my childhood uh that's why you dress like that teenagehood was there's the three years between Nevermind and church Bain killing himself Three and it doesn't feel like that, does it? The, the cultural legacy that they kind of have, that the, the cultural wake, I guess, that, that that follows them is so long 
that you you don't realize how how short it was and i, I think that that's right i think that's a more it's a more compelling story and steve 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 summed it up infinitely better than i can by saying that it might detract from the player in maradona's case but it, it, it embellishes the legend because it, it was so short and i think it's understandable because I suppose people who burn brightly but briefly don't have chance to spoil it by getting old and becoming kind of establishment figures. They always feel as though they're kind of renegades. Um, Maradona actually kind of managed to do to get to sixty, which isn't which is not old, and he obviously died very young, but is not is not kind of a young death. He didn't die, you know, didn't die in his thirties, um, but still remained sort of an outlaw figure. And the one, that, in, in fact, I compared him to Keith Richards in the in the sense that. Like Keith Richards was an amazing musician, but now basically whenever whenever anyone, anyone thinks about him, it's just like Steve, Keith Richards, the, the hedonist, which if I was Keith Richards, I'd be really annoyed about. Just he, Keith Richards wrote some brilliant songs, but people think, oh, I've just done a lot of drugs, Keith Richards. That's kind of, that's kind of his cultural impact now, certainly to, the, to a generation that didn't hear the Stones in their, in their absolute pomp. I, I can imagine when, when uh, Keith Richards shuffles off this mortal coil, he meets Diego Maradona in whichever version of heaven they both subscribe to and Maradona looks at Keith Richards coming through the door and he said, geez, how did you manage to last that long? Yeah. <laughs> then to be fair to Keith Richards, he's been clean since like 1987. Nobody remembers that part of the story, but, do they? Well, this is, the, this is the amazing thing that like, that no one ever mentions that. Like Keith Richards has been sober for what, 33, 33 years. That's, that's, that's really good. Well done Keith Richards, full of admiration for Keith Richards, but it just, it's kind of glossed over and you, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure that's how actually the point, is relevant to this. But, that, but that's the point about what Steve was saying about burning brightly, because if you think about the, the footballing memories we have of Diego Maradona post-1990, it's probably the staring down on the camera in 1994, and then, you know, obviously immediately being turfed out of that World Cup. But, but apart from that, we don't really have any mm. easy-to-remember footballing uh, recollections of, of Diego Maradona. We have his post-footballing career where we we have often had him as a figure of ridicule, ridicule when he's overweight or under the influence. And uh, you mentioned one of the one of the occasions at the, at the last World Cup, Rory. But there is there is a sense in there that if you if you finish off your footballing career for whatever reasons, and it may well be reasons of hedonism or injury or whatever, if your last footballing memory of that person is one is part of that burning brightly, then I think that helps keep that alive because mm. for all the difficulties that Maradona had after he finished his career in terms of how he looked to us and how we might have mocked him they do not impinge upon the person that we saw in those blue and white stripes and black shorts because those are the indelible memories that we have and they last longer and they are a different category to what followed and so therefore we can still think of him as being this player yeah and I wonder if actually the schism between Diego the person and Maradona the kind of personality is too simple. I think there was Maradona the player, and then there was maybe Maradona the kind of cultural figure. And and the the, the memory of Maradona the player is clearly unaffected by the by what the cultural figure became. And I think it's really important. So I, I remember the nineteen ninety World Cup and and being conscious then that Maradona was was the was the sort of defining figure of global football at the time, but also not quite understanding why Roberto Baggio wasn't. Because because Maradona in in that World Cup was not you wouldn't have guessed from that World Cup on its own that Maradona was was the, you know one of the two greatest players of all time and as a, as an eight year old you obviously aren't aware of that um, and then obviously I remember ninety four but I think to people who saw Maradona play regularly even if it was just in in World Cups every every four years I think there is an acceptance that that the player he was isn't isn't adulterated effectively by the person that he kind of became that the figure of fun is, is somehow separate there are lots of different maradonas in our imagination but i think the crucial thing is that in, in terms of whether you can have the genius without the flaws what you probably can't have is a player of that level of that level of brilliance and of that level of reliance for his teammates that's central to the game without some sort of cost to that player themselves. So with Maradona, that was a, a deeply personal cost. Someone like Messi, there's a cost to Barcelona, there'll be a cost to Argentina, but there'll be, there's a cost to him in terms of kind of the pressure that he's under. You can't reach that level without it in some way kind of inhibiting you or affecting you or changing you. The, and we, we should be thankful and kind of admiring that Messi, I guess, is, and same with, same with Ronaldo, has managed to have that level of fame and, and glory and all that stuff and genius. And the, the impact that it's had on them as people is that what Ronaldo's a bit showy and Messi's maybe a bit a bit of a kind of backroom politician 
and he 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 seems very quiet and a bit kind of occasionally a bit surly that they've both managed to kind of remain focused and dedicated and all that stuff under that kind of intense pressure that Maradona lived lived under and not cracked and it's not it's not a flaw of Maradona's that he did crack. I think 99.9% of people would do, but it speaks well of those who don't that they managed to, to avoid those pitfalls. Uh, I want to talk about uh, the way that the game is structured at the moment um, and whether we can get actually that kind of a player in the modern in the modern game in just a moment. Um, and Steve's going to come in in a second, but I just want to read this very quick email from Rich Reardon, which uh, might put a cap on what we've heard so far. Dear Franz Alfredo Johan and Andrew George Hinchcliffe, uh, says Rich, I was pondering on the death of Diego Maradona. I happened to read a very good piece by an up-and-coming journalist in an American publication. Rory's writing on Maradona was excellent. The line, his darkness sharpened the contours of his light, has stayed with me. It's been really fascinating and actually quite heartening to see some of the grown-up discussion of Maradona's life across various media outlets. I find myself left, though, with a question. Can we remove the acts from the man? Can we or should we enjoy what players do on the park, knowing what they may have done off it. The late show host Stephen Colbert credits the comedy of Bill Cosby with sustaining him after the tragic early death of his father, but he says despite its importance to him, he cannot listen to his work now for reasons that people will understand. An extreme example maybe, but are there players who we should attempt to airbrush from history or should we accept them warts and all? This is uh, probably going a little bit further down that road of flaws to warts. Um, but still, just just that argument that we have about a lot of figures in public life, whether they're musicians, actors or or indeed footballers. Um, do we still love them, even though we know off the field uh, they are not necessarily the best versions of people? We have that argument and have done several times about clubs uh, as well. But uh, Steve, you're going to come in. I just wanted to pick up because Rory was talking about his memories of Maradona from the 1990 World Cup, uh, having been a, a an eight-year-old at the time. Well, that was, for me, I was an eight-year-old during the 86 World Cup. So I was exposed to Maradona under very different circumstances because that was, a, a, as, as a child of that age, what happened in that quarterfinal was a really sort of tough footballing lesson to learn. It was a useful footballing lesson to learn about, the, the injustices occasionally of the game and you have to have to live with them. But it's always been difficult for me to fully embrace Maradona, the footballing genius, because those were that, that's still a fairly raw memory from my childhood of first getting, you know, getting into football and, and loving the game as to what happened in that and not understanding why it had been allowed to happen and rooting against Argentina for the rest of that World Cup as a consequence. And, and just want, expecting that at some point somebody was going to come in and say, look, it's all right, look, we're going to go back. We're going to play the game again because clearly that was what happened was unfair. And do you know what? We, we've got to do the right thing here because that's the way you see the world as an eight-year-old. So it, whilst I can admire everything that he, he did as a player and, and the genius he, he was as a player, but these, they're, they're still, those, those raw memories from being an eight-year-old and experiencing that that World Cup quarterfinal, you know, they, they, they take a lot of getting over. I'm glad we got the, 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 the view and we were able to reflect the views of both Peter Shilton and the Daily Mail on the, uh, on the podcast <laughs> today. I felt like I, I delivered that a little bit better. but maybe... Yeah, I think, I think that's probably fair to assume, Steve. You yes, did, yeah, you yeah, did don't worry, I think you better. did a much, much better job. I was, I was a seven-year-old and I was furious with basically whole countries at that point. And, um, but I think, I think the, 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 the maturing of a person and also the, the extra context given yeah. by the likes of Asif Kapadu in his documentary, um, you, from, from absolutely hating that moment, that hand of God goal, to now being a slightly older person with a little bit more of a rounded uh, view of the occasion, actually thinking, of, you know, getting goosebumps because you understand the significance of what that meant at that time to that person, that country, etc. It's interesting. Yeah, because a year a year after that, Maradona played in an exhibition game, or it was a centennial game at Wembley, uh, the Football League versus the rest of the world. Gary Lineker's spoken about uh, about that on on BT Sport uh, ahead of the, the the Champions League games in the the immediate aftermath of Maradona's death, and he talked about the experience of being in the dressing room with him, and and the skills that Maradona. Mm. Boot, as, during the warm-up, booting the ball high up into the air and then bringing it back immediately under his control. But my dad took me to that game and Maradona was booed throughout continuously. And then when I watched the highlights back on the game that evening when we got home from Wembley, Jimmy Hill was the co-commentator. And he said very early on in the game, 
th these fans, they'll get that out of their system. They will appreciate Maradona, the genius, and the boos, they'll disappear quickly. And they didn't. He, he was booed from, from the first minute to the last by the crowd at Wembley Stadium that day. But, but the outpouring of love and affection for him following his death has demonstrated how people did come to terms with what had happened and learned to appreciate the footballing genius. It but just that, took a little bit longer than Jimmy Hill thought it well, was. That's, he thought, that's it, true. Might, he thought, he thought it, might, it might be dealt with in 90 minutes. It took a few years. Well, I, I was just going to say, I was, I was on um, the radio on the morning after and the, the texts that came in were, I would suggest, still a majority, not necessarily a reflection of the entire country's views, but of those listening to Five Live that morning. So many were saying that they have not had not forgiven him and he was a cheat and that should be the end of the discussion and we should not contextualize we should not talk about Maradona the man the history and the legend and all that it's just the fact is he is a cheat end of story and so that that feeling that booing does kind of persist in large parts of the country I reckon you could do and I'm not going to do it but I'm not clever enough but I reckon you could do a fairly convincing thesis on how the reaction to Maradona's death explains modern Britain I really, I genuinely, I mean, I, th I think it was interesting to see the front pages the day after the, the, the tabloids in the mid-markets focused entirely on the hand of God. That Shilton piece, which I did not think Peter Shilton came out, Peter Shilton really needs a PR, I would say. Peter Shilton really needs a PR. Um, he didn't come out of it very well. I don't think Britain came out of it particularly well. And I think it's a shame because if you read the Guardian, the Telegraph, the Times, there was, there was really well-balanced stuff. There was really kind of, there was the same kind of level of, of affection that there was all over the world. If you look at a lot of like the, the Scandinavian papers, um, I think one of the Swedish papers did In the Hands of God, which is a, re that's a really nice headline. That's a really good, head a really good way of doing it. Um, Le Keep went a bit far. They did, yes, they, they, yeah. they put Dieu, Dieu est mort, which is a bit Nietzschean and, I mean, come on, lads, calm down. But the, <laughs> I mean, if, if God dies after Diego Maradona dies, then they've really not left themselves very much room. No, it's it, well, I mean, that's, that is an old bit and a half, God, isn't it? <laughs> I wouldn't fancy writing that one. But the, um, I think it, it, there was a small minded, there, there was a small mindedness to, the, to, to some of the English reaction. And I think, if you, again, if you, social media is not a great gauge of, of kind of how a, how a country thinks, but there, there was a lot of that. And it's, it's true. It, it, the thing is, we shouldn't diminish it. It's obviously all as it as it was, as Steve has so eloquently explained. It's it's deeply held and it's sincere, but I think it would be a shame to. It, it's very reductive to write him off as like he was a cheat, so you shouldn't be sad he's dead. Is just, a really just, really strange way of looking at the world. Just reflecting the flaws and not any of the genius yeah. is is something yeah. that isn't particularly helpful. But but as as Rich made the, the point in his email, there it really it's it, it depends what your point of your point of reference is. And it depends on, on your, you know, when you're exposed to things in your formative years, whatever they are, those become deeply held emotions mm. and deeply held beliefs, don't they? So it, it, it takes a maturity from you as a person to, to learn beyond that and develop beyond that. And, and obviously most right th thinking people would, would understand that actually that, that hand of God moment is a critical part in the Maradona story in the same way as the goal a few minutes later were in terms of demonstrating his genius. And, but, but without them, the story is, is completely different mm. and, it's, and it's not as rich and it's, it's not as long lasting. So do you know what? They're, they're, they're critical episodes in the life of a, of a genius. And we should be in many ways grateful for it happening because it, it helped develop the icon, didn't it? Mm. Uh, hence the question, can you have a genius without the flaws that both made Maradona? I just want to finish our conversation today talking about uh, the kind of the technical aspect of whether a maverick can be given birth to in modern football. And, and Chinch, I, I suppose it's kind of difficult to say because there's not too many examples of ones that have fallen by the wayside because they haven't fulfilled their potential. So we don't know whether they were in fact mavericks and geniuses. But the way that football is tactically these days, is it hard to have that kind of a player, that player who on whom the entire team is based. Because even if you're talking about Lionel Messi, it's within a framework that yeah. that club employs. So can, can you see it happening? Would, would a team allow themselves to be beholden to this one player's natural flair and maverick nature? It's getting harder and harder. The two greatest individuals I ever played with were Paul Gascoigne and, and Paolo Di Canio, and they were very much accommodated by the coach. They, they knew, and we all knew as players, what they could do for us. They could win games for us, but they wouldn't, 
uh, do what another player in that position would normally be asked to do. So the coaches realise there is a price to play uh, to pay when you play players like that. But again, they're balancing it up with the, the the possibility of winning matches. So that's why those players were in the team. Would those players now even be tolerated? I, I'm not sure. Again, I, I'm trying to think of I think about Ryan Giggs in terms of, of individual ability. Ryan Giggs was a, an incredibly gifted individual player, but certainly played within a framework. Again, he was he had a job to do and he did that job diligently for the team. And yet he still produced incredible pieces of individual brilliance. I'm really racking my brains to try and find a lot of players around today who are given. Ronaldo is probably one who probably doesn't do everything that's required of his position, but again, he still produces incredible things. And if he produces incredible things, you can see you, you can't really say, well, you're not going to be in the team because you're not doing the job. I can't think of too many others that, that would actually be given the freedom to do that with the way that the game is now and the way that coaches want it to be very much a team. It isn't kind of 10 players plus one Maverick who can basically win the game for us because I guarantee you those 10 other players are worried about that one player or that's the way that the game has been coached and the way that the game is played. So is it harder to produce? Is the game not producing those types of, I suppose there will these guys that come along, but will they be kind of, kind of sidelined because they don't fit the mold? I think that's less likely than, than they'll be coached into a specific role. So it's like Mm. a specific expression of their, of their genius within a tactical framework. Football's a little bit more, what's the word? Uh, Adaptable than it's given credit for. So if you think about someone like Messi, it's hard to tell now does Barcelona such a mess, but but initially Messi's Guardiola and Villanova and to an extent even Martino and Luis Enrique kind of incorporated Messi's brilliance within a tactical, an wow. overall tactical yeah, yeah. plan yeah. Um, because he's he's worth changing your ideal system for. Because he's he, Messi. Grew, he grew up in that plan, didn't he? But he did grow up he was in that aware plan. of his responsibilities well, within that framework to a certain to, extent. To an extent, like like Guardiola turned him into a false nine. That was the that he hadn't grown up playing as a false nine. I don't think. I mean, although where the false nine ends and the the, the actual ten starts is is a different. But, well, but was the plan was the plan set up for him? Or yeah, the plan was set up set to up accommodate. Or well, it was it was adapted to to make use of of him and his particular quirks and what he needed. So if you look at kind of a lot of those, those really good Barcelona teams, Messi isn't doing what everyone else is being asked to do that, you know, Messi is, is allowed to wander about a bit and he's not, he doesn't have to press and he's allowed to have the 10 minutes at the start where he just walks around trying to get a picture of the pitch, but even someone like Pirlo and Italian football in the era Pirlo was playing was incredibly like regimented, but Italian football changed the teams that Pirlo played in changed a little bit to accommodate Pirlo's, to, to emphasise his strengths and mask his weaknesses. That's what football's always done. So I think... Is that still happening you, you, to a degree? Yeah, it's, so, but the thing that I think is really crucial is that I'm not sure how much football will turn out those kind of yeah. like virtuoso geniuses anymore because everything is so industrialised at youth development level that like, I think you, you, you would get a player of a similar talent level of Maradona into an, into an academy now and they'd be taught to press. They'd be taught to... to which runs to make. They'd be taught, you know, to play certain passes. They'd be taught that the game, the game is kind of standardised in ways that it wasn't even when like Messi was coming through. So, so the two things are kind of contradictory. What, one is that I wonder if a player of that level comes through, whether I think pretty much every time a coach would change what they wanted to do to, a comp, to allow that player to express themselves, if they're good enough. And with the example, the counter examples, people like Ozil and Pogba, maybe they're just not quite at that level of Messi and Maradona. So they're not quite good enough to warrant changing everything just to accommodate them. But I, I do suspect, my guess would be that it's going to be harder and harder to produce those players because I think they'll be, they'll, they will be in sort of uni, uniformized, that's not a word, but like they'll be standardized at such a young age into the kind of, the established wisdom of modern football that that same kind of virtuoso street won't manifest quite as it would have done if they didn't have that exposure. Are there one or two examples of players who typify maybe what Rory has just described in terms of having come through that system, having that, that natural gift is, is Phil Foden at Manchester city. Is he a product of the way that football, because he is able to do it. He is able to do both. He's a tireless worker as well as a creative spark. And then the likes of João Felix, Dominic Jabajloy, are they not mavericks, but they, 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 there is still space for the playmaker. 
the modern, might have, like a modern maverick a modern version it. of it yeah yeah <laughs> yeah for, i mean for, it's hard it's hard to compare directly foden i think has been has been brought up in such a way that that his genius is expressed through the structure which is probably the that's probably the happy the happy compromise that you get to be a genius, but you get to be a genius within certain parameters. And one of the he's, reasons- the of, he's the product of what you've just described. Yes. Yeah. Happening. yeah. And, 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 and one the- of the reasons why they didn't want to send him out on loan as well, because he, yeah. they felt that he operated within a structure and the, 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 the uh, albeit at the beginning, few opportunities he got within that structure were more valuable to him than halting yeah. that development elsewhere. Zabazlai, I think is probably similar. Does the Red Bull system is so, is so well kind of well well set up to to lead players into a specific style of football. Joao Felix is the is the one who's maybe the best example that I mean, Joao Felix is just is a pure number ten. He's not he's not anything else. He's not been brought up in a specific way to play in a specific system. And it'll be interesting be interesting to see if you know if, if Man City went and appointed a manager who wanted to play a completely different style or a completely different formation would which I suspect they won't. But if they were to do that, would Foden adapt or would he have would he have problems not being in the structure that's so familiar to him same as Abbaslai when he comes to leave the, the Red Bull clubs um Joao Felix is a pure 10 and I think he shows to an extent that even a manager like Simeone is prepared to to shift a little bit to accommodate a player of that level of talent it's what, about Ansu, what about Ansu Fati where, where does he is he kind of like a Foden he's been produced and will be, here, be an extraordinary yeah. player within playing on certain tram lines yeah except that with, 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 the, with the one difference that a player like Fati is maybe slightly easier to incorporate into lots of different systems because yeah. because he has certain you know he's he's played a lot of his career his very young career wide I, I suspect he could play as a ten fatty but I'm not I'm not sure that he'd need to 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 necessarily kind of be given it be given his chance yeah. he'll I suspect he'll end up either playing out wide or as a as a number nine effectively and that will be that will be how he kind of shines. Felix is a slightly different, but yeah, you're right. Fatty has been brought up in a, in a very specific system, so he's probably yeah. got the benefit of that. Felix is different. Does that that is a position that is dying out? The, the proper number ten is dying out because it doesn't fit into that kind of image of of the pressing approach. So he's maybe the more he's more of a throwback than Fatty or Foden. Mm. I would and guess. We, we don't want to uh, confuse Maverick with just versatility, which isn't yeah. another thing. A lot of players like Kevin De Bruyne has versatility they can play in lots of different positions but they're also able to, to, to contribute defensively as well but the other thing the one other thing and i'll be brief that about maradona that will never be repeated is that maradona spent a lot of his time succeeding with what average teams yeah and you know that argentina 86 was not full of superstars and one of the charges held against messi is that he's not won a world cup with a much better squad around him much better squads around him although i would say dragging them to a final in 2014 is not bad um but Maradona at Napoli as well was not, they were not a kind of elite team. And obviously they signed Careca and then they signed Bruno, they had Bruno Giordano just so they could have a, a catchy title for their forward line. But <laughs> there were not, that was not an all-star 11 by any stretch of the imagination. So I, I wonder if we won't ever get to see, we won't ever have that sense of a one-man team anymore because a player of that level will not stay in a team where they are the one man. You might've heard um, uh, the sound of, crashing um just about a minute ago that was uh nicky hinchcliffe andy's wife emptying out his most recent pay packet from sky in the two penny pieces <laughs> that it arrives in i've been paid in double cream <laughs> um i'm slightly concerned chinch if you just turn over your right shoulder uh, have you seen the light <laughs> there is a it's not quite a halo it's just a blinding light i think god is upon me is touching me on the shoulder does god does god need someone to do maradona's running for him <laughs> Because you clearly haven't got his ability. Um, it is now time for Nevermind Jack and Ori, What a Soccer Story. This is when Andy Hinchcliffe tells the tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. This, yeah, this is terrible. I had my, it hasn't happened very often, my inflated ego pricked. Um, I, just, <laughs> I just covered the Leicester-Fulham game, as usual, in, quite brilliantly. Uh, there was no need for studio analysis after, <laughs> after I'd finished. Oh and so I'm travelling home, cock-a-hoop, and we're given a rental car, so we have to stop and fill them up with petrol before they're, they're taken away. So I, I have to given stop on rental the way home. Cars. You yeah. take one from, take one from you, the office. Yeah, before yeah, you return yeah. them to Hinchcliffe cars. There's only five on the driveway. So, yeah, so I'm traveling back from Leicester to Manchester, so I have to stop for petrol. So I stop for petrol, and there's a, there's a guy, obviously, going, chatting away, and he, he, clearly, he clearly knows who I am. Uh, and we start chatting away, and he says, oh, it's... This is quite interesting. You don't meet many people who actually know you from maybe the TV work, but then he also listens to the pod as well. 
So he said, you know, I do listen to a lot. He didn't say whether it was good or bad. He just said, I, I listen to a lot of your work. You know, he had that, can I, can I help you badge on? And he, he wasn't really helping. Uh, and he was talking about you know, the work and, and how hard you have to, you know, work to, to get to where you are and the kind of prep and everything that you do. And when you go into a petrol, clearly you're going to pay for the petrol, but then you, you start, because you're a bit hungry, Steve, aren't you? When you come back from games, it's, you're naturally a little bit hungry, a bit peckish. Always hungry, Chief. And I'm always going to be drawn to the, to the hot dog section and the chocolate section. So as I'm trying to get away from this guy and moseying over towards the hot dogs and chocolate, he, he says, uh, where are you going? I said, I'm, uh, I'm just going to go over there and get a snack. And he said, uh, you think you should? And I said, uh, I started that, uh, what do you mean? He said, well, you know TV, you can put a, put a few pounds on you. You look like you've, uh, you've looked after yourself, you know, since you stopped playing. And he, I actually then didn't get the hot dog that I would normally get and the chocolate I normally get because I don't even know his name. This guy made me feel so terrible about having a little post-match snack. And I drove away from that petrol station thinking, I I'm just a disgrace. I'm a disgrace as a broadcaster and my body is ruined. So that just, it's surprised I picked myself up to be able to do the pod today, to be honest, because I was in a bit of a low ebb driving off that SO4 court, I must say. But it's very rare for someone to, to treat me like that. And then just to just to shatter my confidence. And he remains I, you know, I love, a I valued what, listener. <laughs> well, well, yes, but I'm going to have to go back, see if he's still working that graveyard shift that maybe tells his own story and find out his name and maybe, you know, write to his line manager and get him sacked. Um, let, let us say to all those who happen to see Andy Hinchcliffe um, out and about uh, or potentially at any sort of snack bar to maybe just give him a look. Maybe just to suggest that you follow the podcast and, and you're, you're aware of the troubles that he has with his, um, yes, propensity to have a post-match snack. Maybe just give him a look. Just give him a look. Is that change? Really? Don't need a, don't need a look really? at anything. Just, just, just say how great I am and leave it at that. <laughs> Isn't that the simplest thing to do? Do you think Sky have got moles stationed at petrol stations <laughs> and service areas around like, the country? Like Fergie in pubs in the 1990s. <laughs> yeah, they a, a, activate them if they think their pundits are starting to put on a little bit of puppy fat. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Rory, Andy and Stephen and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. And everybody, if you haven't already, you are now allowed to put up your Christmas tree, your decorations. You can listen to Mariah Carey and you can have a mince pie. Only if you're listening to this podcast on the 14th of December or <laughs> afterwards. Chinch, it does look a lot like you are being beckoned into heaven. <laughs> Am I dead? You think I'm dead? Well, if I do that, it goes, doesn't it? So if yeah, that's still, better, yeah. the computer screen. If I do that, it, I am yeah. being called. I am being called to the great football pitch in the sky. Or the great, no, it'd be the great gantry, wouldn't it? It's the great well. broadcaster than the footballer. It's probably about level at the moment in terms of your levels of I'm, I'm going to be in limbo, aren't I? What am I going to do? I'll have my boots on and I have one boot on, one brogue on. What am I going to do? I'm going to have a shirt and tie, but football shorts. What, what, what are they going to do? <laughs> like Brian Robson being presented as player manager. <laughs>